Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to an audience of sentient beings. That is, at least I hope you're thinking. I want to start off today by reminding us all why this broadcast even exists. 1 Peter 3.15 reads as follows in the NIV, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, this passage doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we don't explain what is the hope that we have. The hope that a Christian has is the receipt of forgiveness for their sins based upon the sacrifice of Jesus. And furthermore, we're looking forward to his return and to spending eternity with God in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, as described in Revelation. So this hope is actually based upon the words of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament and the other events about Jesus, such as his death and resurrection. If those accounts are fiction, then, in truth, we have no hope. So our hope is actually tied to the factual truthfulness of Scripture itself. And the question that gets asked in Western culture, often overtly, sometimes just by implication, is why would anybody believe the words of Scripture, knowing what we know today in science, and believing that the Big Bang and biological evolution and life from non-life are all scientific facts? and the history recorded in the Bible is just a bunch of mythical nonsense. So the main purpose of this broadcast is to provide a reason for believing in the history in Scripture in the face of those claims coming from Western secular science. But note carefully that we are told to do this with gentleness and respect. Elements which are far too often completely missing from the evolution-creation debate. And so given that context, let's think about the post over at Evolution News by Casey Luskin yesterday titled, Unintended Consequences, How Hostile Responses to Darwin's Doubt Turned a Thoughtful Reader Against Darwinian Evolution. Luskin writes, A bumper sticker I've seen around in Seattle protests the war on terror, warning that we're making enemies faster than we can kill them. Without wading into matters of national defense and military strategy, I'll give the author of the slogan this much. Any strategy that focuses too much on attacking people and not enough on making reasoned arguments is doomed to fail in winning hearts and minds. For an illustration, take a look at a post by Reverend James Miller of Glenkirk Church in Glendora, California. He recently explained that he became a Darwin skeptic, not just after reading Darwin's Doubt, but also after considering responses from critics of the book. So we're going to take a look at James Miller's post, titled, Changing My Mind on Darwin. And as a reminder, Darwin's Doubt is the recent best-selling book by Stephen C. Meyer, subtitled, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. In Darwin's Doubt, Meyer's documents two things. One is, 
the Cambrian explosion in which in a very short period of time, geologically speaking, a huge number of highly complex and diverse body plans and creatures show up in the fossil record fully intact. Secondly, the fact that there simply is no set of precursor fossils that somehow lead up to these highly complex, diverse Cambrian creatures. And Darwin's Doubt also looks at what we've learned recently about the amount and type of genetic information necessary to build all of those diverse creatures, and questions where does this information come from, and Darwin's Doubt points out that based upon the discipline of information science and from our scientific laboratory experience, information of this type always arises from an intelligent source, and so they reach the conclusion that an intelligent source is the most reasonable explanation for the diversity of creatures in the Cambrian explosion. And of course, this is a monumental problem for Darwinian evolution. So that's the basic subject matter of Darwin's doubt that James Miller had just read, and we'll discuss his reaction to it in a moment. Pastor Miller writes, So I've changed my mind about Darwinism. I guess I have to tell you where my mind was to tell you where it is now. He then explains that he was taught evolution, can explain it, but is neither philosophically enchanted with it, nor does he feel threatened by it, but also notes that he's sort of a realist about how science works. He's not overly confident that science is fueled by objective curiosity rather than passionate self-interest and ideology, money, and power, and he says science is motivated reasoning on its best days. So it appears to me that Pastor Miller is an intelligent man who's paying attention to what he sees. He then writes, When I listen to militant Christians talk about Darwinism, it's pretty clear they aren't scientists, don't know what they're talking about, and aren't even open-minded enough to think about the subject. When I listen to militant Darwinists, it's pretty clear that they aren't scientists, don't know what they're talking about, and aren't even open-minded enough to think about the subject. I guess there are just so many fundamentalists in this debate on both sides, I've stayed away from it entirely. I read a few books about it years ago and felt like there were a few intelligent people arguing for and against, surrounded by a cacophony of lunatics. I just read Stephen Meyer's Darwin's Doubt. Meyer is a Cambridge PhD in philosophy of science. He hangs out with the intelligent design people. His writing is fluid, detailed, and reasonable, he seems to know what he's talking about. The book makes the case for the fact that the fossil record doesn't support Darwinism. The sudden appearance of new phyla without sufficient time for the mutation and selection process to work is simply unaccounted for by the rocks. The problem is that when Myers says things like, quote, the Precambrian fossil record simply does not document the gradual emergence of the crucial distinguishing characteristics of the Cambrian animals, end quote, how on earth should I know if he's right? I don't have time to immerse myself in paleontology. I'll never be an expert. I just have 400 pages of articulate, self-assured, well-documented evidence for Meyer's case. So here's how I find my way into a conversation on subjects that are not my primary field of study. I read the reviews that are antagonistic to the source and just look at the logic that's employed. I find this often gives me the best read on a work. If the critics are sincere, the reviews are usually precise. And let me just interject that I completely agree with the reasoning 
that James Miller has expressed here, and I urge you to pay close attention to the tone and precision of the arguments presented both for and against creation and evolution. Arguments full of vindictive emotion and rhetoric, but void of detailed scientific data, are to be avoided, or rather, to be noted and realize whoever's making such an argument has no data to present. So Pastor Miller said he's going to look at the logic that's employed, and I need to define a term just in case you aren't familiar with it. A genetic fallacy is the illogical reasoning that if you look at the source of a statement, you can decide if the statement is valid or not. So in other words, don't look at the content of the statement, but look at who said it. This shows up very frequently in the evolution-creation debate, typically of the form of an evolutionist saying, all creationists are liars, and not dealing with the statements made by the creationists in the realm of science. So that's a genetic fallacy. Back to Pastor Miller's blog. The New Yorker's review began with a genetic fallacy, presented arguments that Meyer had refuted without mentioning that Meyer had addressed them, and then deferred to another blogger for the scientific content of the review. It then called Meyer, quote, absurd, which, given how shoddy the review actually is, was an absurd thing to do. Then I read the review from which the New Yorker got its science, which was actually written by a grad student at Berkeley. Now I have to say that Berkeley is, in fact, one of my fields of expertise, and I know exactly how Berkeley grad students go about their work. Somehow, Berkeley selects the crazies and the militants who show the most promise and then teaches them that knowledge is a completely subjective power tool which should be manipulated by those on an ideological crusade to undermine authority. I'm not kidding. I went to Berkeley. That's what we did. Now, I'd say that's quite a fascinating analysis of Berkeley and admission of his own experience there, and that it is absolutely not unique to Berkeley. And I would imagine that some of you grad students out there right now are sort of grinning in acknowledgement, recognizing things you've seen, and others are angry at the notion that something like that could be implied. Take a look in the mirror if you're angry. So what did Pastor Miller find in the science review? He wrote, what's interesting about the grad student's review is that it was posted 24 hours after the release of Meyer's book, and it's filled with snark. He's not having an intelligent conversation. He's insulting Meyer in order to defend something religiously. In a later defensive review, the grad student says that he read the book during lunch. He read over 400 pages of scientific material during lunch and then posted an insulting review. He says his detractors are just slow readers. People who win speed reading competitions tend to cover a thousand words per minute, maybe four pages, with 50% comprehension. That level of comprehension is almost useless, and it becomes less useful the more information-rich the content. A book of Meyer's size would have taken an hour and 40 minutes at that pace with minimal retention, and that's if you're not, oh, say, eating lunch. On top of that, the review is almost 10,000 words long, which would take some time to write, making it highly suspicious that the review was written after the book was read and not before, in anticipation of the book's release. See, this is how I know who to trust in academic communities. The charlatans have no character. 
you read the grad student's defenses of his review, and they sound a little panicked, and you realize that he has been following Christians around and arguing with them for years with an inquisitor's zeal. There's a personal agenda here, and his approach to new information on the subject is anything but scientific. Now I start to smell a rat, and I change tactics. Now I really want Meyer to be wrong. I want one good, solid review by an objective thinker, maybe even a Christian, who can debunk Meyer. So clearly Pastor Miller is intelligent enough not to give up after one obviously nonsense review, and continues his search for a reasoned argument against Darwin's doubt. Before we return to Pastor Miller's search for a reasoned rebuttal to Stephen Meyer's Darwin's doubt, let me tell you who Donald Prothero is. He's past professor of geology at Occidental College and lecturer in geobiology at the California Institute of Technology. He teaches physical and historical geology, sedimentary geology, and paleontology. And he's written several books about evolution, and if you Google him, you'll find him all over the place defending evolution. Now back to Pastor Miller's blog. So then I read Donald Prothero's review. He's a paleontologist and a scholar. It begins with a caricature and a smear, saying that anyone who questions evolution suffers from confirmation bias. He then says, explain Thomas Nagel. What he's referring to here is Thomas Nagel wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, which is a well-reasoned argument that physical matter is insufficient to explain consciousness. And confirmation bias is the tendency to accept evidence that confirms our beliefs and to reject evidence that contradicts them. So Donald Prothero begins by saying anyone who questions evolution suffers from confirmation bias. He then says they have PhDs in the wrong field and thus aren't qualified to discuss evolution. Meyer again studied philosophy of science. Then he launches into unsubstantiated accusations, saying there are errors on every page. He says Meyer claims the Cambrian explosion happened, quote, all at once. Now look, I just read Meyer, and he doesn't say that at all. This isn't a mistake. This is a lie. The truth comes out as he goes on to refer to Meyer's religion as a, quote, fairy tale. Again, I haven't found a scientific mind. He's referring to Prothero here. I found another fundamentalist. Now I begin to sweat. A host of scientists have endorsed the book. I want one to reject it on perfectly level-headed grounds with no patronizing rhetoric. Another definitive work on the Cambrian Explosion came out in January of this year called The Cambrian Explosion. It attempts to give a scientific explanation for how so much variety erupted in such a short time. The authors say, quote, The Cambrian Explosion can be considered an adaptive radiation only by stretching the term beyond all recognition, end quote. That means the evolutionists are saying the fossil evidence doesn't bolster evolution in this particular area. The New York Times ran a science article last month that said that scientists will spend the coming years trying to figure out what combination of environmental triggers caused the Cambrian explosion. It doesn't mention Meyer. It also seems to leave a big open question mark about why we need to defend Darwinism at points where the evidence leans away from it. So now I've changed my mind. I don't think the fossil evidence does support the current representation of Darwinism. 
I think there are some otherwise well-trained scientists who are freaking out and doing it in widely public and observable ways. Their lack of command of reason is a telltale sign that their motives for defending their orthodoxy are not scientific. And I believe that the failure of the scientific communities to engage in this conversation in a rational way is a manifestation of power brokering rather than honest intellectual engagement. And he concludes, Could humanity have evolved? Sure, but the case isn't as strong as they told me in biology class. End quote. I believe that Pastor Miller's logic is pretty good. He looked for and was unable to find a scientific review that wasn't full of logical fallacies, invective, and personal attacks on Stephen Meyer that actually dealt with the content of his book, and he was unable to find it. He then concludes, perhaps they don't have a good scientific argument, and notes that some evolutionists are basically saying, trust us, we'll figure this out later. In the meantime, don't you dare doubt Darwinism. I experienced a similar reaction to Pastor Miller when I began to examine the creation-evolution debate or controversy many years ago and began reading the supposed rebuttals to creationist arguments. Many of them were filled with anything but logical, scientific, well-reasoned arguments. They were filled with absurd statements and personal attacks on the creationists, just as Prothero's review of Darwin's Doubt. And back when evolutionists would actually go on a college campus and debate creationist scientists, it was very interesting to watch some of those debates. I've seen cases where the creationist scientist was simply presenting scientific data that had actually been published, and the evolutionist scientist was angrily yelling at them. Now, in case you think this is a new phenomenon, let me share with you something that C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago. C.S. Lewis was a scholar, but not a scientist, and he long supported the idea of theistic evolution, but changed his mind later in life, and he wrote a letter in response to Captain Bernard Ackworth, who was one of the founders of the evolution protest movement in England. So Ackworth was a creationist who had been corresponding with Lewis and trying to convince him of the fallacy of evolution. Lewis wrote, I wish I were younger. What inclines me now to think you may be right in regarding it, evolution, as the central and radical lie in the whole web of falsehood that now governs our lives, is not so much your arguments against it as the fanatical and twisted attitudes of its defenders. End quote. Lewis's phrase, fanatical and twisted attitudes of its defenders, is precisely what Pastor Miller found when he went looking for a refutation to Darwin's doubt. I've been reading about the Cabrian explosion for decades now, and there's much new information that has recently been found in the fossil record, and I continue to look for any reasoned evolutionist defense of how that may have happened. I've yet to find one. If you know of a good one that actually deals with the subject matter, please let me know. You could go to my website at creationmythormiracle.com and post a link to it for me, please. And now for something completely different. Creationists have been making much of pointing out the discovery of soft tissue within dinosaur bones over the past 20 years and especially in the last five or six years. 
Well, according to a recent publication, we need to stop doing that. Or maybe not. Creation Evolution Headlines has an article yesterday on this titled, Dinosaur Soft Tissue Explained? It says the discoverer of soft tissue in dinosaur bone now has a new explanation for its preservation. But does it really answer the obvious question? According to Live Science, Mary Schweitzer's controversial T-Rex soft tissue find has been, quote, finally explained. The answer is iron. The iron in hemoglobin acts like a formaldehyde, preserving the delicate proteins and stretchy blood vessels. But does it really preserve it for up to 145 million years? A press release from North Carolina State describes the hypothesis coming from theory and from experiment. In theory, iron atoms must be guarded against in cells because of their reactive potential. After death, though, reactive iron becomes a guardian of preservation because it forms cross-links with proteins, preventing them from decay. This process also makes soft tissue hard to detect, Schweitzer says. The experimental part involves soaking a recently killed ostrich bone in water and in blood. The water-soaked bone decayed into a goopy mess in less than a week. Because of iron in hemoglobin, the blood-soaked soft tissues remained, quote, recognizable, for two years at room temperature, retaining their basic structure. The press release is tentative, saying that iron may be the key to preservation, may play a role in preserving ancient tissues, and in Schweitzer's words, may be both the mechanism for preservation and the reason why we've had problems finding and analyzing proteins that are preserved. The article does not deny the authenticity of the soft tissue, but only tries to offer an explanation for the unexpected preservation. Stephanie Pappas in the Live Science article gave some emphasis to the controversial nature of the, quote, seemingly impossible, end quote, soft tissue claim. The find was also controversial because scientists had thought proteins that make up soft tissue should degrade in less than one million years in the best of conditions, she wrote, but then acknowledged that, despite alternate theories, the 2005 claim and subsequent soft tissue finds in even older bones 145.5 million evolutionary years, proved real. Schweitzer noted that scientists often don't see what they don't expect to see. Quote, The problem is, for 300 years we thought, well, the organics are all gone, so why should we look for something that's not going to be there, and nobody looks, she said. The obvious question, though, was how soft, pliable tissue could survive for millions of years. The new explanation may be welcome news for evolutionists. Pappas writes, Dinosaurs, iron-rich blood, combined with a good environment for fossilization, may explain the amazing existence of soft tissue from the Cretaceous, and even earlier. Creation Evolution Headlines responded as follows, Hold your hadrosaurs. This does not solve the evolutionist problem. For one thing, Schweitzer and, independently Mark Armitage, found osteocytes, bone cells in their samples, not just blood vessels. The osteocytes retain their original structure, including their delicate dendrites. For another, two years of preservation is 0.000001% of 145 million years. On what basis can they justify extrapolating such exquisite preservation that far when the ostrich bone was recognizable, indicating some degradation had occurred? Nobody on Earth has experienced 65 million years. The evolutionists are assuming the long ages, not demonstrating them. In spite of this strong evidence against millions of years, they're hanging on to that belief like a baby gripping its pacifier. The articles betray a subtext of desperation. Pappas described the soft tissue claims as amazing and seemingly impossible. They seem relieved that this iron hypothesis may provide an answer. 
Yet other admissions in the article support the creationist flood interpretation. The bones of these various specimens are articulated, not scattered, suggesting they were buried quickly, Pappas noted. They're also buried in sandstone. Try to imagine circumstances in which a T-Rex strutting across a desert suddenly became completely buried such that burrowing creatures were unable to reach it and disarticulate it. There aren't too many options available. Read all of these articles for yourself. The option that is available and makes sense of all the data is to believe the biblical history is actually true. These dinosaur bones are only a few thousand years old, not tens of millions of years old. And many of the fossil graveyards were caused by the global flood, a catastrophe of immense proportions, greater than anything we see today. Consider the evidence as you seek the truth. See creationmythomiracle.com for more info. 